Psalm 36. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Father, I ask that you would teach us your word this morning. Help us to understand what we are unable to understand apart from you, Holy Spirit. You are every bit as present in this place as you are when we are inside because your people here are gathered and you are in your people. So help us to sense that, help us to, to sense the, your tangible closeness to us right now and help us as we read your word to understand what it is that you have spoken to us. Change us, transform us, and help us to look and act and love more and more like our Jesus each day. It is in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray and for your sake that we gather. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what we're going to walk through this morning. There's kind of three main sections of this psalm. The first one talks about our sin, which is the problem. And then the middle section unpacks God's faithful love, his steadfast love, which is the solution. And then it ends with one last appeal to protect us from sin. Okay, so we'll start at sin, the problem. Sin is the problem. It has affected and infected essentially everything because of the fall. And so that is the problem that we deal with. And so verse 1 starts with transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. So what we need to remember is that our greatest danger is never without. Our greatest danger is always within. Right? Sin around us or even sin against us is not our greatest danger. Scripture is quite clear that the greatest danger to us is always the sin that is within us. And when men speak to God in Scripture, we see that in the Psalms, we see that in, in, in many of the prophets, we see that all throughout uh, the narratives. Like As men speak to God, their question is almost always some form of, what are you going to do about them? And when God speaks to people through his prophets, his answer is almost always, they are not the problem. You are. Or sometimes, yes, they are a problem. So why are you acting just like them? 
or even sometimes, yes, and I'm the one who sent them. Because of your unfaithfulness, or in order to teach you something specific that you're only going to learn by this means. God's response is never, you're right, you're awesome, everybody else is totally the problem. As much as I would love for that to be his response in scripture, I never see that. It's always the reverse. It's always, yeah, but let's, let's talk about you for a minute. God warns through Isaiah that after a long description of all of the enemies that are surrounding them, that are assaulting them, that are constantly tormenting them, he basically waves them off. It's like, although they're, they're like dust. They're a dream. One day, no one's even going to remember them. And if you guys have any anxiety around Edomites, no? Any fear of a Syrian attack? No, because God's right. Nobody even remembers these people anymore. All of these things that at that moment was the worst thing that could ever happen. Now we go, who? God says, "They're, they're, they're dust. They're a dream. I'll deal with that. The problem is, Your hearts are far from me, even though you honor me with your lips. So again, God through the prophet says, no, 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 they are not the problem. The problem is here. This is what we are here to deal with. This is what I came to deal with, Jesus tells us, and all throughout the Old Testament. This is what needs to be dealt with. Jesus warns that it is not what happens to a person from the outside, but what comes out of them from the heart that defiles them. In Matthew chapter 15. And then again in Luke chapter 6, he says, It is for out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. I didn't say that thing because of what you did to me. I said that thing because of what my heart is filled with. And therefore, that's what comes out. We tend to be much more concerned about what is out there and what everyone else is doing or not doing as though that is what we should fear. But scripture over and over and over again says that is backwards. In fact, it's full of examples of people who were sinned against, oftentimes in in terrifying and awful ways, and the sin that was done to them, against them, resulted in their greatest blessing and the blessing of others. Joseph, Moses, Jeremiah, Hosea, pretty much all the apostles, and most importantly, Jesus himself. Now, understand, I am not saying that the wrong that others have done to you is insignificant. Quite the contrary. There are many of us in this field right now who have been sinned against in ways that honestly are horrifying. And nowhere in Scripture is that diminished. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, eh, it's not a big deal. No, it says God grieves with his children over those things. And the things that happen to these people in Scripture are not minor or insignificant things, right? Jeremiah, a prophet of God, every single time this poor guy opens his mouth to declare the truth of God, somebody beats him up and throws him in a ditch. Every time. Moses, 
15 minutes after rescuing all of God's people from 400 years of slavery, everybody turns on him and says, you ruined our lives. We had, a, we had a better back there. What? Hosea? Let's be honest. This is a mixed group right now. The kids aren't in another room, so I can't actually share what happened to Hosea. I will spare you all the conversation on the drive home when your kids say, hey, what does this word mean? And you, after nearly veering off the road, begin thinking through your strongly worded email to me. Suffice it to say, Hosea had to deal with some really messed up stuff. And then Joseph. Joseph, whose own brothers decide, well, murdering him is probably a little extreme. So how about we just sell him into slavery and fake his death? Sound good? Sound good? Yeah, that's a great plan. Let's do that. And then, as a slave, he by God's grace is positioned under somebody who sees his hard work and he is elevated to a position of honor within this household. And then this guy's wife tries to trick him into committing adultery with her. And then because he does the honorable thing and refuses her, she falsely accuses him of assault and he is thrown into prison unjustly. Everything that happens to him is this unbelievably unjust, horrible sin against him. And you know what it says in scripture? But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Steadfast love he shows him. And through all of that, the hand of God is on him such that at a certain point, Joseph is able to look at the brothers who tried to murder him and sold him into slavery. And he says, hey, I forgive you. Because even though you meant that for evil, that was not okay, which you guys did. But God meant it for good. And he has accomplished blessing in my life and has literally saved your lives because of that. It's a completely different perspective on this. The point is not that these things are not significant or even horrifying. The point is that those circumstances and sins against you do not define you. And nothing can happen to us that in any way can keep us from God's steadfast love, his fullness, and his joy. Nothing. Only what is within me can keep me from that. Scripture even takes it one step further and urges us to celebrate when things from the outside are happening to us. Right? When we face opposition and people are sinning against us and we handle it with the same patience and love and kindness as Jesus, Scripture tells us, in this you rejoice that know you, not, though you now uh, for a little while, if necessary, have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be revealed more precious than gold, even though gold perishes, and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or James, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
So far from these things being the circumstances that keep us from Jesus, Scripture tells us that those external people and circumstances have the potential to be the very thing that is forming us into the image of Jesus. That's pretty amazing. He turns those ashes into something extraordinarily beautiful. Jesus himself says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, not for being a jerk, but for attempting to follow Jesus and live as he lived. And when you are persecuted for that, Jesus calls us blessed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, the reality is we are often afraid of the wrong things. Over and over again in scripture, Psalm 56, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You sense a theme? Why am I afraid of them? Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. What's the worst they can do? They can kill you. Big deal. To live as Christ, to die is gain. I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, once he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The second half of verse 1 in Psalm 36, after saying the problem is the sin that is deep within their heart, it says there is no fear of God before his eyes. He is the one who fears the wrong things. Verse 2, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. This person has a very high opinion of themselves, a high view of themselves, and consequently a correspondingly low view of others, right, who don't meet their expectations. And often without their even realizing it, that means also a very low view of God. Three, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit, deceiving both others and ultimately deceiving ourselves. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. That is delightfully understated, right? Surely we have lost something in the translation there. I'm guessing the the Hebrew is way more poetic than, and he's he's doing stuff that's not good. This is David, right? He's an amazing poet. I'm guessing the Hebrew sounds more awesome. Uh, English, English is a little clumsy here, but it's pretty straightforward, right? He's... He is setting himself up in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. This person often has very strong feelings about evil, especially everybody else's evil, which they reject with gusto, but are slow to admit and reject their own because they trust in their own rightness. Now, the reality is, if I read these first four verses, and I believe that it could not possibly in any way apply to me, then I might be guilty of verse 2. I might be flattering myself in my own eyes, deceiving myself into believing that my sin will not be exposed, or even more dangerously, naively, believing that I have no sin to be exposed. 
So while these verses describe a rather extreme case of one who is utterly surrendered to this kind of sin, we all dabble in this and we regularly find ourselves setting ourselves up in a way that is not good. Right? Maybe that's why it's, that phrase is so simple. Because we go, well, I'm not like completely surrendered to sin. Well, do you sometimes make decisions that are not good? Well, yeah, I suppose I could say that's true about me. Okay, well then, this applies to me and you too. And much of this problem stems from believing that the problem is out there and not in here. But then, the psalmist gives us the solution. The glorious, gracious gospel solution. Right? He doesn't say, so pull yourself together and start acting right. No, he, he takes the focus off of us entirely. and says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep man and beast you save, O Lord. What a fantastic declaration. We've gotten back into poetry again here, right? So he's no more, it's not clumsy. This is beautiful. This beautiful, fantastic declaration of the limitlessness of the Trinity's pursuing love for you and me. Now, this term, steadfast love, doesn't require knowledge of Greek to understand. It's a, we, we can pretty much gather the bulk of what he means by this just by reading that. But I think it is worth emphasizing, just in case you were wondering, to emphasize the reality that this is not just a feeling that God has towards us. This word necessitates action. It is a consistent action toward an object. Okay, steadfast love is what God is doing, not just what God is thinking. So that's true of the English word love as well when we're using it correctly. But I thought it'd be helpful to just double down on that and make sure in the Hebrew it does not mean something less. It means something even more. What it is saying ultimately when it talks about the steadfast love of God, which if you spend time in the Old Testament, you will see over and over and over again and then echoed by the New Testament authors, the steadfast love of God. What it is saying is that the reach of the practical impact of the constant and consistent acts of love that the Trinity is demonstrating toward those that he holds dear is totally without limit. Amen, indeed. That is really good news. It does not run out. It does not relent. He continues to pursue actively, actively demonstrating, working out this love that he has for his children. And how does this love take form? How do we dwell in this love? How do we abide in this love? In verse 7, he again, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So, there's a couple ways that we want to address this. Number one, we address we trust in God for our protection and our provision. That's what that poetic term of resting under his wings means. Like the mother bird protecting her young, we hide under the protection and provision of God. So number one, we trust God and God alone for our protection and our provision. 
So we're going to jump back and forth between Psalm 36 and 37 because sometimes these things not only go together but kind of are question and answer, right? So that's why it's good to read through all of them because you'll see consistency and rhythm throughout them. And so in Psalm 36, it says, uh, it, it addresses this idea of, of, of uh resting under God's protection and provision. And in Psalm 37, it says in, in verses one and two, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Don't worry about them. Do not be envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And verses seven through nine, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. We will not fret. We will not worry. We will trust. We will not trust in princes. We will trust in the Prince of Peace. We will not trust just in his goals and his ends, but also by his means in accomplishing those things. Or like it also says in chapter 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. So we trust God for our protection and our provision. In verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Again, we see this idea of, of gracious and delightful provision. So number two, we delight in God. We delight in the Father. We delight in the Son. We delight in the Holy Spirit. We delight in Him above all else. All right, Psalm 37.3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. If you're reading Psalm 37, there's almost certainly in your Bible a little footnote that says there's a couple different ways that you can trans translate this this idea of befriend faithfulness. It's a poetic term. And so there's a couple different ways. And one of the ways that your footnote will likely tell you is feast on faithfulness. I like that one. We feast on faithfulness. We delight in our God. 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, we've got to be honest, without careful reading, that one can get us into trouble. That one can go haywire on us. We can misread that and think it says, be a Christian and you will get everything you want. How's that working out for anybody? Nope. No. That's not working out, not because God doesn't fulfill his promises, but because that's nonsense. And that's not what he said. If that's what he said, then this would be a self-contradictory statement. Desire God and he will give you what you really desire, which is evidently not God, which means you aren't really desiring God, which means he won't give you the other stuff. See, see how that's self-refuting? So that's not what God is saying. It's actually much more plain and direct than that. We can avoid the confusion and the disappointment by understanding it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires your heart. Delight in God most and he will give you what you delight in most. Himself. You delight in the greatest thing and God will actually give you the greatest thing. It's not delight in the greatest thing ever and God will give you a dum-dum. 
the world's most dissatisfying candy. Remember those things? Even as a six-year-old, you open that wrap and you're like, seriously, that's all this thing is? And yet, the things that my heart is constantly desiring is the equivalent of the dum-dum. It's never satisfying. Then like 48 seconds, I'm already chewing on the little Q-tip stick going, that's it? That's gone already? That's almost every desire of my heart where I think, well, this thing will satisfy me. If this person will just respect me, if I can just get that new toy, if I can just have this promotion, if I can just this, and 38 seconds later, I'm chewing on the stick already going, seriously, that's it? That was not nearly as satisfying as I was expecting that to be. No, God says, delight in me, the greatest reality in all of creation and outside of creation, and I will give you me. That is an unbelievable promise. That is so much better than what I thought the promise said. It is, if you seek me, and Jeremiah says, if you seek me, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And then Luke, he says, hey, you guys know, even as much of a mess as you guys are, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? When we delight in him and his presence, he delights in giving us more of his presence. That is unbelievable. Now, that doesn't mean that he doesn't also bless us with other earthly blessings, right? We all drove here in a car or rode here on a bicycle or came here with friends or here with family. Like we have, we have homes that we are living in. We have a building, an amazing yard in the sun. Like there's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He does. He is absurdly generous with grace upon grace. The difference is when my desire is Christ above all, then all of those other things receive appropriate categorization. Right? Like they're nice. Yeah, I can certainly enjoy them, but it's not the thing that I am trusting in to satisfy me, to meet my need. They can be enjoyed, yeah, but they're nowhere as awesome as Jesus. And experiencing the presence of of my Jesus. Verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So number one, we trust God for our protection and provision. We trust in his steadfast love. We delight in the Father and the Son and the Spirit and his steadfast love. Number three, we trust our Jesus in his steadfast love for us and we follow him. As we look at example after example of God actively demonstrating his love, we get no more clear and extraordinary example than the life of Jesus Christ. He's unbelievable. His life is the most extraordinary life ever lived. And then his death, the most powerful and profound death because he didn't stay dead, which is kind of a big deal. In John, it says, so, so in, in, in this verse, he is the fountain of life. And John says, or Jesus says in John, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. These declarations that David is making, Jesus says, yeah, that's me. I am that fountain of life, and that fountain of life I will place inside you, consistently sustain and feed and nourish you. In your light do we see light. 
in John 1, in him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is that light. And John, Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verse 10, O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. It is the Father's adopting love that we cling to, that we need more of. His faithfulness, his faithfulness that we trust in, never our own. It is not my faithfulness that will get me through the next day. It is his faithfulness applied to me and given to me and given to you as a gift that gets us through tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. As fully devoted followers of Jesus, we need not fret ourselves over evildoers or live in bondage to our own sin or self-deception or circumstances. Behold, the word says, what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. His adopting love, making us his family, is so extraordinary. That is what we cling to when the sin of our heart is erupting out of us onto those that we love, when it is enslaving our minds and our desires to all that would distract and destroy us. It is not white-knuckled obedience that is going to get me through. It is remembering that you are dearly and deeply loved with the pursuing and active, steadfast love of the Creator God of the universe, demonstrated and made accessible through our Jesus and applied directly into our souls by the living Holy Spirit of God. So then he finishes in verses 11 and 12, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. So we start with sin, the problem, God then gives us the solution of his steadfast love. And then the psalmist ends by, Father, protect us. Protect us from sin, from the sin out there and the sin in here. Let not arrogance take root in me. Let not the hand of the wicked affect me. From sin within and sin without. Here's what our Jesus prayed on our behalf, what Jesus prayed for you and for me and what I believe he continues to pray even this moment. To the Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or make them holy in your truth. Your word is truth, both written and living. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we do not fear the world or flee from the world, but we, as sons and daughters of God, are sent out on his mission into the world in order to demonstrate his steadfast love to the world and that our life is secure in something beyond this world. Our lives are meant to tell a different story, church, than the story that the world is telling. And that as they look at us, they would wonder as they see us love and serve our enemies and face trials, not with complaining and grumbling and bitterness and anger, but with joy. Living deeply dependent on our Jesus and deeply rooted in the gospel of grace that declares that if I live through the life and death of Jesus and I forsake all for him, then I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what we cling to, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us in your written word and through the living word that is our Jesus, that we have nothing to fear when we belong to you. That you are with us and you are for us in every single thing. Remind us, Spirit, that while we are absolutely and utterly dependent on your grace, the reality is there is no greater, no more secure, no more satisfying thing in all of creation than to be dependent on the extraordinary grace that calls us and claims us and sets us free and adopts us as your very own. Don't allow us to forget that. Help us to live joyfully, securely, and in delight of all that you are and all that we get to be because of you. In Christ's name and for his sake, 